So Money Episode 110, Jeffrey Zorofsky. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. Happy Friday. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. If you are a foodie like me and love to go to restaurants, not just for the food, but also for the overall experience or entertainment as it is these days, today's guest is not going to disappoint. His name is Jeffrey Zorofsky. You may have heard of him. He is an incredibly talented chef and a successful restaurateur who broke into the New York City restaurant scene after graduating from college. Uh, he, along with business partner, Tom Colicchio co-founded the gourmet sandwich chain Witchcraft plus the fine dining restaurant Rivermark and its innovative accompanying urban farm in New York City. Jeffrey also co-hosts the new Bravo TV series Best New Restaurant where he helps new restaurateurs learn how to navigate the realities of their businesses under pressure. And we're going to talk a lot about those realities and how uh, young budding restaurateurs and chefs can uh, break into this uh, very, very tough industry and, and build thriving businesses. Additionally, we also talk about secrets to saving money when food shopping. So how you and I can save money at the grocery store and how to put the best quality foods in our carts for the least amount of money. The biggest mistake startup restaurant owners make and how he recovered from his biggest financial mistake, all that and much, much more. Here is Jeffrey Zorowski. Jeffrey Zorowski, welcome to So Money, my first chef on So Money. It's a big day. Wow. That's great. <laughs> and I'm, I love food. It. And I love food. So this is very late to the game here for me. <laughs> uh, but all in all, in all seriousness, uh, I'm very honored to have you on the show. Uh, I'm, you know, one of the biggest, um, I guess, guilty pleasures my guests have on the show. And I'll ask you later what's yours. But a lot of them say it's food. Um, there's a lot of guilt associated to the amount of money that we spend on food in this country, <laughs> particularly <laughs> well, if you live in New York City. We could we could talk about that uh, up and down. But yeah, yes. could you lower the prices at your restaurants, please? No, <laughs> uh, no. Actually, uh, you know, I don't know if you've been following the whole minimum wage debate, but uh, restaurant prices are going to go up soon, and they need to. Yes, yes. Well, actually, today. Uh, Today's April 22nd. I'm recording this with you, but we have on the show Dan Price, who is the CEO of Gravity Payments. So oh, cool. do check out that interview. Uh, Jeffrey, you are all over the place these days. Um, you, you, people may recognize you who aren't living in New York City. They may recognize you most from your Bravo show, uh, Best New Restaurant. Congratulations on that. Thank you. How has reality TV changed your business? Has it really opened doors for you or has it been more of kind of like a burden? As it is for it's, – it's different for everybody, the experience. I'm curious how it's been for you. Yeah. Uh, I mean personally, it hasn't, it hasn't changed much yet. Uh, you know, we had one and, – and I think part of it is we've only had one season and uh, it was a great show. It was a lot of fun. Um, I feel like – uh, it takes a little while to build sort of the exposure around around a season and around a type of show. So we'll see. Um, it has created uh, some exposure for the the business. Uh, people have really re- reached out and uh, you know want to more on the business development side or, or you know interested in in bringing 
you know, witchcraft somewhere because of, of that. I mean, we already have one of my partners, obviously Tom Clickio is always been, has been on TV for a while now. So we've always had a little bit of that lift. It's always been a positive, I think. Um, and then the other thing is just being able to see all these great restaurants, uh, that was on the show. There were, there were 16 of them and they were all under three years old and they were all sort of just figuring out, you know, some had it more figured out than others. But, um, that was a lot of fun because we got to see a lot of different, um, methods of operation, a lot of different concepts, a lot of different, you know, entrepreneur styles. It was really, uh, that was, that was really cool. Starting a business is difficult in and of itself, but a restaurant in particular is probably the riskiest of all businesses. I think in, uh, in New York alone, one in four, one in five close a week, according to a, a, one of the last surveys I saw from Zagat. What made you want to enter this industry with, uh, with such fervor? Uh, you know, you were working behind the scenes at restaurants and then you transitioned to owning your own restaurants. Um, you saw, you know, the ups and downs clearly from that purview. Um, what inspired you to say, you know what, I'm going to take this on, on my own and I'm going to try to do this in entrepreneurially. Sure. I mean, I think, uh, honestly, I think restaurants are, um, uh, I don't think the, I mean, the business itself is, is not an easy one, but I, and I think, uh, but good operators can make it, you know, can make it successful. And the knowledge of how to be a good operator is actually something that's not, not really well taught in, in the marketplace. So I think the, the high failure rate, um, that is sort of perceived is a function of the fact that it's actually quite a low barrier to entry to get in. So, um, and, and it, it takes, you know, there's, there's although it, it should have a lot of skill level attached to it, it doesn't really, because you open your doors, people come in, they give you cash, you cook, you, know, you cook them food and, and then you're done. Um, so I don't, I, so I think that most people try to get into it and, and, and it's a kind of an American dream, uh, business. And, you know, obviously, um, people always need to eat, uh, mm-hmm. and it's been growing. So I think more people have gotten into the game. I would actually be, it'd be interesting. And I'd love to see, uh, how people, uh, how the returns on investment actually compare on restaurants compared to, you know, the amount of capital that's put into and pummeled into all other types of investments. And my guess is it's actually not that far off in terms of the same. I think the, the, Everyone likes to talk about it and likes to mm-hmm. talk about the failure rates. I'm not so sure that the failure rates, A, are as high and B, the amount of capital uh, writ large is actually um, is actually as at as much risk because you have just a higher beta, I think. Yes. I know several restaurant owners myself. They work long hours. It is not a glamorous industry. <laughs> and I think that might be one of the misconceptions going into it. Like, I'm going to own my own bar. It's going to sure. be great. I can have food whenever I want. <laughs> yeah. The, um, there is a, I mean, I think, I, I think the misconception is that, um, somehow this is an easy, you know, an easy operation. It is not the hardest work in this operation, actually in, in this business is, um, figuring out systems and process and training good people. And that is actually harder work than, uh, putting out food or serving guests and, and, but most people, um, spend all their time doing what what I would consider the easy work, which is putting out food and serving guests because it's known, it's familiar. But if you were, if you were a former line cook or a chef or a front of house manager or server, and you want to own your own place, you obviously always resort to going and doing the stuff that you know how to do well, which is serving people. That's a, that's why you're in the business. But what you don't know how to do is necessarily run a business. And what you definitely don't know how to do is, is, is necessarily train and 
set up systems and processes for the actual business. So at the end of the day, that that to me is the biggest hurdle and biggest challenge for new entrepreneurs getting into the business. That's a really good point. And it kind of transitions us to talk a little bit about the wage gap. And uh, there's all this debate in the country about, um, you know, whether to raise the minimum wage. And when you said something, you said something that was, that sparked this, which is that, you know, you want to keep your staff well-trained, happy, you know, the front of the line folks, and also the people in the back, the cooks, the um, the staff in, in the kitchen, they need to feel invested as much in the business as you are. There is actually a restaurant in Philadelphia that we're going to go to soon where they're, um, they have gotten rid of tips. No one yeah. is allowed to tip. Everyone gets paid $15 an hour. What do you think of a, of a model like that? Do you think that that is a, a more winnable model for a restaurant? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I'd say that we've been uh, we've been working on this uh, for quite some time. Uh, I believe this is the future. We're just working out the details of how this works. Um, at the end of the day, uh, the part of this that needs to get communicated clearly and well, and I'm glad you brought it up here, is uh, that the price of the cost of of actually delivering good service, good food. Uh, in a, as a, you know, as a source of, let's call it entertainment, right? The majority of restaurants are, are entertainment venues, not necessarily nourishment venues, because if they were, you'd make your own food at home, right? And so to, to shift that and say, these are real jobs for real people and they're doing a service to you. And then to think that um, the majority of the employees in that field are working, you know, based on a smile, based on, I mean, frankly, there's a study that came out where, uh, women, female servers um, uh, dye their hair blonde because blondes get 60% more tips than brunettes. What? Yeah. And so when you think about blondes it. Blondes do get all the fun. What? <laughs> but that's a, that's just like a bad, that's just an awful dynamic that has been established from, I, I guess, prehistoric times. You know, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know when that whole um, model got, you know, inculcated. And I believe, and I'll say this, you know, sort of outside of the bounds of, of being a restaurateur, but there, there's a lobbying group for the restaurant association of the United States that, that I think has wielded a lot of power to, to maintain federal tip minimum wage, very low, et cetera. And that's just not a good thing. It's, it's not helping the servers. It's not helping the businesses. Uh, and there's all this resistance to it. And I think that if people just embraced it the other way, and then as a group, everyone you know, customers started to realize and understand that what it is that the true, true cost of going to a restaurant is. Um, everyone would be on board. It's just going to be a, a cultural shift that needs to happen. And at the end of the day, we're talking about it's not just the the actual dollars about you know giving a living wage, a fair wage. It's also about this relationship that customers have with with employees at or servers at restaurants. And I feel like it's a degrading one at the, under the current circumstances, and there's an opportunity right now to actually shift it. You couldn't be more right about that. I have stopped going to restaurants because the service was not good. I had a bad experience there. I, you know, that is – you're right, and it is entertainment. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I mean, a lot of it is – I mean, and I don't want to classify it just as entertainment in the television sense. It's – um, it's we're going ambience, for, yeah. Yeah, we're going for a particular p- purpose. Sometimes it's to share a meal together. Sometimes share a special event. But um, at the core, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily nur- – it's it's not nourishment or it's not – you know, people have forgotten how to feed themselves so they go to restaurants. And that's, a, that's great for my business. Uh, it is uh, 
but they, they haven't also shifted in their mind that that's why they're going as opposed to, uh, you know, truly just basic nourishment, which is what it you know used to be. So um, once you get into the mindset, you're like, hey, this is I'm going to be kind of whether it's entertained for five minutes at a fast casual restaurant or, you know, I'm uh, someone's doing something for me that is delicious and interesting and different than I could ever make at home and understand that there's huge value in that and not think about it as how can I get this for cheaper? Um, that shift will be, you know, and, and certain companies have done that very well in the last you know 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, the more we continue to kind of change the consumer perception around it, a lot of these things are going to take. Another thing that you're hoping will change is food systems in this country. Want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, if you think about, if you ever, if you ever actually spend any time thinking about, uh, where your food comes from or how it comes from or how it gets there, it's, it's kind of, (laughs) it's a scary place. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, unfortunately, uh, uh, a lot of political culture, a lot of political issues that haven't been addressed or brought to the public's knowledge. And right now you've got people talking about, uh, labeling on GMO, you know, for GMO foods on packages, um, and the whole purpose of that, by the way, is very, very simple. Like not it's not about demonizing GMOs. It's about information, the right to know what's in our food. And we have so many factors, so many lobbying groups, so many manufacturers, so many farm farm you know, major com- commercial agriculture groups who are trying to prevent the American people from knowing what's in their food. If you ever knew, if you ever did some research on the amount of federal subsidies, you want to talk about money, there's like $17 billion a year written into the farm bill that goes to a very select group of, of, um, of farm, of commercial agriculture interests to produce very bad ingredients for us. Mm. Uh, you know, sugar that doesn't even make it into our system, or corn that doesn't even make it into our plate, make it onto our plates, but makes it into our, our feed for cattle and all this other stuff. And all of that is, and we know how bad those ingredients are if we were to eat them ourselves. And so why are, why are we asking our, our animals to eat it and then we're eating them? And it's all being subsidized. It's a huge amount of money. 1% of subsidies, I don't mean to go on a rant here, but 1% of subsidies in the United States Farm Bill goes to a thing called specialty crops. Specialty crops are things basically that are green, like broccoli. <laughs> and and the rest goes to all these other these other <laughs> ingredients. So our systems are kind of like it's not a fair it's not a fair fight. So if you if you live somewhere where the only option is really cheap food, um, you're gonna have you know you're gonna have cheap bad calorie unnutritious food, and it's not your fault. Yeah, it's well, all it's available. And so many of us, food is comprises of a large part of our budgets every month, every week, however often we go to the grocery store. What's your? How do you maximize your dollars to make sure you're getting the best kind of food for you, um, and that you're getting the right kind of food? You know, the food that well, there's so many labels these days: natural, all natural, organic. Um, how do you navigate the grocery store so that you're putting the best possible stuff in your cart and also, you know, not spending crazy amounts of money? Yeah. I mean, I spend, I think everyone's got their technique and, and, and I think a lot of people, uh, I, I shop at farmer's markets as much as possible. Um, mostly because there are no labels, there's no ingredients. You don't have to look at it and be like, you know, try to interpret uh, something with that you can't pronounce, right? It's a, a, 
a leek is a leek, a sweet potato is a sweet potato. And, and you'd be surprised uh, at the majority of farmers markets uh, here in New York, but also, um, you know, the, the, there's been, I think 10 years ago, there was about 3,500 farmers markets in the U.S. There are now 8,000 plus. So there are more and more access. And I would say uh, dollar for dollar, the, the cost of produce and uh, is cheaper at farmers market than less expensive at farmers market than it is at a grocery store. Cause you're not dealing with, um, middlemen. You're not dealing with distributors. You're not dealing with the cost of running that and the cost of the cashiers and the cost of all this other and the refrigeration and all this other stuff. Right. No overhead and no one's paying for shelf space. <laughs> Correct. There's no slotting fees. There's no marketing dollars. There's none of that. It is show up your farmer's market. It's the greatest thing on earth. Now that not everyone has access to a farmer's market. And I get that in New York city that we have 53, uh, green markets, uh, and a lot of them are in neighborhoods. You would be surprised that that uh, you know previously did not. So more and more and more, we're getting access to uh, fresh food. Um, I'd say if you don't, uh, you know, number one rule, <coughs> number one rule, if you go to the grocery store, is just shift your diet: more vegetables, less meat. Period. Full stop. Like mm-hmm. doesn't mean eliminate meat. You don't have to go rogue. You don't have to like just just you know think of meat as a condiment much more than the mm-hmm. center of the plate. Um, and you'll and save a ton you, of money. Yeah. And you think about like, if you want protein and other things, and again, this sounds a little preachy, but like things like lentils and beans are amazing sources of protein. Um, and they don't come with all the, the baggage and all the expense of, of, of the traditionally grown, you know, meats and, and such that are on the shelves. And I mean, I, between you and me, like if it's amazing today that, that a, a head of broccoli is, is more expensive than a pound of chicken, you know, brown, a, a pound of broccoli is more expensive than a pound of chicken breast. That's incredible. And so I'd say just as an economic, from an economic decision, uh, go shop at farmer's market, get vegetables there. Uh, in the grocery I'm talking about, those is that shift in, in dollars. And, uh, and then you use less, use less, uh, good meats and, and, you know, beef, it should be grass fed. Corn fed is bad for you. Uh, beef should be grass fed, but really, you know, eat a lot more fish, uh, there's a lot more uh, available stuff out there now than we used to we used to see. So, well, it's all good advice, and I've also heard shop the perimeter of the grocery store because on the huh. inside of the grocery store is what all the packaged food, right? All the processed food. So if you can stay to the perimeter, you know where yeah. like you got the baked goods and the vegetables and the produce yep. and everything like that, you'll you'll be better off. It's a good, it's a good point. I didn't mean I I buy so few packaged goods uh, because of you know I mean anything that that's going to last for a month in your, in your house. <laughs> like I just, I mean, I just don't, it wasn't meant to be, it wasn't, empty, it wasn't it. meant to be consumed. It. I mean, I'll buy, I'll, I buy like a lot of nut butters and stuff. And those, you know, those are crazy expensive now because of water shortage and such. But at the end of the day, like I'll use them sparingly. And that's about the only thing that I really like hold on to. Everything else is like, you know, anything that's not dried mm-hmm. beans, for instance, uh, it's like, you won't, you just won't see it. Well, I'd love to transition now to my so money questions, starting with your financial philosophy, Jeffrey. A lot of yeah. uh, young startups lean on you for advice as you guiding them from, as you say, point A to point C. In your personal life, though, what would you say is your guiding money mantra? Yeah, I'd say uh, it has shifted over the years. Uh, over the last couple of years, uh, it has been not to get too attached to any uh, deal, any possession, any position about money or possessions, right? Like just keep objective about 
everything. Um, at the end of the day, you know, money is a currency, right? And and literally, uh, when you buy something or get a service, you're you're transitioning your energy and time for that through this thing called money. And so, um, money in itself is not you know not worth anything other than a representation of the amount of time and effort that you put into to acquire that and then to use it. And mm-hmm. so, um, once you sort of detach from the money, uh, the actual dollars, uh, and, and see it for what it is, I think a lot of possibilities, a lot of things open up to you. Um, and then, you know, thinking objectively about things I've got just on the professional side, you sort of advise a lot of, advise a lot of entrepreneurs who get so passionate about a position or about a potential deal. And I think Branson had said it best, but, you know, deals are like you know, business opportunities, like buses, just, <laughs> You know, when one comes by, let it go. Another one will be, you know, be by in a few minutes. And um, and I've always used the analogy of monopoly, right? Like you're going around the board and you, boom, you can land on community chest and you take a card and it's either, you know, you won the beauty contest to collect a hundred bucks or, you know, you got a luxury tax 10%. So you just sort of can't get too hung up or too attached to anything. Uh, and you just... Uh, you just need to recognize and see the things for what they are objectively. You're so right. And, and so is Richard Branson. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to adopt that saying that business deals are like buses. Is there a puppy in the background? We should yeah, know sorry. That's my, that's my dog, Abby. She was, that's okay. She we was, like dogs on the show. Oh, she was shaking. We're dog friendly. She, she's looking at us now. She's, <laughs> she's so what's her financial philosophy? No, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, her financial philosophy is my bowl is empty. <laughs> give me more. I want what I want when I want it. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's go down childhood lane. Let's talk a little bit about you growing up. I believe you grew up in New Jersey. Yeah. You mentioned um, uh, how – what kind of a uh, of a reception did you have to the world of money um, when you were growing up? What kind of introduction was there? Yeah, I didn't have a really organized uh, uh, you know, conversation or introduction to money as a kid. Um, and I, looking back, I think that's fine. I, I wish – I kind of wish I – I had a little bit more of like um, sort of sit downs about it uh, or other lessons. Um, My earliest sort of money memory was um, I was, I was like, I think I was about six and um, I'd always been kind of entrepreneurial. My brother and I, you know, did a lemonade stand and and sold things on our street front and such, but um, we had to raise money for our uh, little league. And uh, on the weekends we'd go out to like the local supermarket, you know, little shopping center. And, uh, we'd have our little cans, uh, and my brother would take one corner and I'd take the other and, and we would just sort of position ourselves and then, you know, ask people to, um, give me your money. (laughs) Yeah, no, to donate to our little league, right. We needed a new field. We needed uniforms. We needed all this stuff. So, um, you know, looking back, this was like, you know, child labor, but, um, but, (laughs) I, I really enjoyed it and I loved being out there and asking people. And then, you know, a couple of days in a couple, you know, a couple of weekends in, I, I realized oh, I was doing all right. And then one day I just, I don't know where it came from or how it popped in my head, but I just changed the way that I asked people, uh, for a donation. So, uh, originally it was like, can you, would you mind, you know, use my cutest face possible and all sorts of stuff. And then, uh, one weekend I just said like, I just started saying, you know, please contribute. And that was different than can you, would you, should, you know, and 
when you'd say, please contribute and put the can out, people responded amazingly well. Like the double, triple, like I couldn't believe how full my can would get with dollar bills and such. And it just sort of impressed upon me early on. It was all about how you asked and um, as opposed to sort of what you were asking for. And you don't get what you don't say you want, right? You have to actually yeah. say, I would love for you to contribute as opposed to leaving it as a question. You know, you're like, please do this. Correct. You don't now. ask, you don't get, right? Like, <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, I learned that when I was a teenager in the back of my car, right? And so uh, you don't ask, <laughs> you don't ask, you don't get. And, and you know, no one's going to, I always say to my, like the folks that I advise and mentor um, that no one's going to come up to you at a cocktail party and sort of like, say to you, if you're raising money, no one's going to come to you and say, oh my God, are you raising money? I would love to, you know, right. you have to go, you have to go through the process of, of putting it out there and you have to put it out there in a good way so that people can get their head around it, can respond to it and connect, connect with it. So what made you realize that would work? Was it just an, uh, a hunch or did you, did I, you, I don't, you know what, like, honestly, what? I don't remember. I don't know why or how, just like anything else. I don't know how, uh, certain creative ideas or, or whatever come in and, and it's been a while now. So um, I just felt like maybe it was a competitive thing. You know, my, um, maybe it was wanting to um, come up with different ways to outraise money than all of the kids. Or maybe you just got tired of asking. You're like, just, just please give me your money. <laughs> yeah. I think it was more iterative than it was sort of Eureka. It was just kind of like, um, yeah, you just keep doing the same thing and like you get one out of 10 and then, uh, kind of like natural selection sort of adaptation. You, you sort of try something else and then boom, you know. Well, what a great lesson for all parents on the show. Put your kids to work. They will learn life lessons. I I think, I think uh, it would be great if there was some sort of like uh, program for parents to be able to teach their kids about money, you know, and like a, almost a curriculum uh, in the home. And I know everyone's got the, you know, you got the, the money, the piggy bank and you got the lemonade Allowances. stand and all those classics, mm-hmm. but like, an actual schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. You, you're talking. You're, you're preaching to the choir here, Jeffrey. <laughs> I know all about that, and I and I I'm a ten month old, so I can't wait to get him. <laughs> oh, really? Money, money cool. savvy. He's a little too young right now, but let's talk about failure. You know, we we started the show do- talking about how restaurants are so difficult to get off the ground and to have be successful. What would you say in your um, financial life was your biggest money failure? Uh, wow. Where do we start? There's just so many, right? Like you, you can't, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like, uh, a good friend the other day was, was describing their, their grandfather and, and, uh, his sort of success and, uh, to the outside world, uh, this person was known as X, you know, the person who did X. And then when you speak to the family and my friend, he's like, Oh yeah, grandpa, he had, um, two failures and three successes. And so uh, very few people sort of talk about all the different failures. So I'm so glad you asked the question. I'd say, you know, failure may not be the the way I would describe it, but uh, in, in hindsight, um, especially in 2008, 2009, um, I felt like I was really intuitive as to what was going on in the financial crisis. And uh, I mean, a lot of people were, but I was not, I looked at it and I wasn't as scared as, as I think everyone else was. I was, I was definitely nervous. I didn't know what was going on, but I, I also felt, you know, having read a lot of Warren Buffett and a lot of uh, other, other, other folks, um, it felt to me like 
there was an enormous opportunity to kind of go deeper uh, at the bottom of the trough, right? The whole, the whole uh, be greedy when people are fearful and fearful when people are greedy. And um, I didn't trust that instinct well enough. I, mm. I definitely um, um, tried and played with a couple ideas, but none, none so deep that, you know, on a go forward basis, I think I will, probably be a bit more aggressive, uh, with those types of, um, in those types of situations. Well, you like, like millions of others at that time, you know, it was a very emotionally confusing time. Yeah. And that's sort of when I got, I think that's when I, uh, shifted my perspective on being objective about money because watching, uh, watching people, uh, sort of go crazy. I mean, Kabir talks about this. Sigal, who's on your show, talks yes. about this in his book. And it's like, there was just this mayhem and people's relationship with it was crazy. And, and, and to a large degree, I mean, I was watching the volatility index every day. You're like, like, what's going on in the world? Let me check the volatility index. And um, that's just nuts. And when you think about the long course of history, uh, money's going is here to stay. Right. And it's going to it's kind of zero sum. If it moves from one place, it's going to go to another place and it's not going to it doesn't disappear. Um, And so uh, the question is just following it where it goes and being less, um, as you said, irrational about about our attachment to those things. So real quick, what would you say was your most your most successful financial moment, a so money moment for you? (laughs) I'm sure you've had just as many. Um, I would say. Probably the 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 cra- craziest, but also like best rewarded uh, moment, you know, in my business career for sure was uh, sort of sending uh, a business plan uh, and an idea unsolicited to my current partner Tom Clickio uh, about a sandwich shop based on green market ingredients and uh, you know growing into a chain of them, uh, and and in his his just like unbelievable openness to write me back and say, come on in, let's talk. Turns out that uh, he had just started witchcraft like two weeks prior and with, with our, our other partner. And he just said, we need someone like you to come on board and help us grow this thing and roll it out. And so it was this like fortuitous moment. There was, um, I was urged by a good friend uh, to, to actually send out that letters and business plans, like, unsolicited, uh, which I think, you know, most people are so scared to do, but you know what? The you had training the when you the were young. Not, yeah. the, the idea is not, you know, the idea is not so great. It's the execution. And so, um, so being able to share that idea with someone and having them respond to it was incredible. So, well, I was going to say you as a, at a young age, put yourself out there right? Uh, when you were trying to raise money for your little league team. And it was probably a scary thing, but that I remember like being 19 and having an internship, right? To cold call people at, I was an intern at Morgan Stanley and said, you know, Hey, would you like to, I was, I was trying to get basically leads for my boss. Um, like it was like, I was a telemarketer, you know, <laughs> but yeah. uh, I hated it, but it really forced me to understand how to communicate with people, how to get rid of my fears, how to just kind of go for it and face rejection and be okay with getting rejected. And that's such a, such an important life lesson. Sounds like yeah. you had a similar, uh, c- conditioning. Yeah. I mean, actually, uh, going back, uh, before that, uh, I'll never forget. I was part of a, I was a 
part of the business development team of a, of a aggressively growing uh, financial technology startup back in 2000, 2001. And, you know, as we all know, uh, watching that crash, literally we were in our, you know, we had our air on chairs, our catered lunch and our polar fleeces. Uh, mm-hmm. And we were ripping Napster files like crazy on our T1 lines. And, and then we watched on the Ides of March, March 15, 2001, we watched the market crash. And we literally all looked at each other and said, oh, this is over. And within two weeks, the company was wrapped up uh, and we all were out of jobs. The, and I literally that day, I kind of went and I called my mom who was, I was working in the same neighborhood as her and I said, mom, you know, I called her up and told her what happened. And uh, she met me at this little bar in the middle of the day. And we just started, we had a drink and you know, we started talking. And then she said, uh, she just sort of assured me everything was going to be all right. And it was that moment when I think that then spurred the next couple of years of, of recognizing that this was not the end of the world, even though it felt like it. Um, and I had, you know, we had stock options. This is like this lifestyle that was, you know, uh, given by this job and, and then have it all go away in an instant. Uh, you know, I thought it was the end of the world or that mm. I didn't know what I was going to do or the market was dried up. There was nothing available. Da, da. And this is in between being a chef, by the way, and being a restaurateur is kind of where I learned a lot of business skills. And, um, and she just assured me everything's going to be okay. And I was like, Oh, okay, good. Let's move on. You know? And like, there was this, like, you just lost, uh, lost any fear. Uh, even though the fear, I, I shouldn't say it. you always have the fear, but it's just how you react to it. Right. You right. It's how you dance up. with it. Or you yeah, not dan- to. yeah. Dance totally. with the fear. Yeah, yeah. That's a great phrase. Dance with your fear. It's Tony I'm Robbins. Not. I can't take credit for that. Oh, um. does he say that? <laughs> yeah. All right. I could quote Tony Robbins all day long. I the man you, knows what he's both. talking he's about. Good. He's good. Um, uh, especially the most recent, his most recent, uh, book. book. Yeah. He was my first guest on this show. So I'm very honored to have had oh that goodness. opportunity. Yeah. What you a way check to it yeah. Way to <laughs> um, you know, I'll suggest, you know, it's been downhill from there. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd suggest, you know, you should hit some balls in the driving range before you, you start, uh, before you hit, you head out on the course. Well, wow. you know, that's kind of me. I'm, I'm a little crazy like that's that. Awesome. All or nothing. That's yeah. You have said in media before I've read articles about you and you've, you've, you've been quoted to say that you're an animal about your rituals. And uh, I like to ask my guests, what is their number one money ritual, like a financial habit that helps you keep your head straight when it comes to making hard decisions about money? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And I'd say, uh, not to get too philosophical on you, my number one ritual and habit that helps me keep my head straight, if that's the criteria about finances, is meditation, Uh, period, full stop. Like there is no uh, everything else like is – uh, is way too tactical to, uh, to know that it actually works or, you know, it it creates success. Um, meditation, I meditate every morning, about 20 minutes, uh, sometimes in the evening as well. And, uh, just by creating this objective relationship with the self, the ego and, and all the other, you know, noise that's in our head, um, it, it allows me to see, at least helps me to see objectively about anything related to finances. So um, having said that, uh, you know, am I, I think the other sort of, and, and maybe because of that, I feel like my biggest, the best ritual is kind of always saying yes. It's just like whenever something comes about, it's like being open to the opportunity. Uh, and, and then I, uh, as opposed to being fearful of, of potential opportunities and such, but I don't, I don't spend a lot of time budgeting or 
checking bank accounts or checking the stock market. There's really kind of, you know, I really spend very little time on that. I, I spend a lot more time sort of creating and, and being, you know, in, in, in my, in, very present in my life. Mm-hmm. It sounds like really just being clear and objective, which is really so foundational when you think about it. Yeah. And, and I, I don't want to, you know, I think a lot of people talk about this like meditation and sort of monk like, uh, kind of approach. It, it isn't, it is really important for people to understand. It's like, you're not going to get to be a, a stone. Like you're not going to, you're not going to become objective independent of things. It's about how you react to the things that are going on in your life. Uh, whether it's a deal, an opportunity, you know, uh, the, the market crashing, uh, you know, losing, losing your job, like, like I did back in, in dot com days. Um, and it's just about how you react to it. Mm-hmm. And, and to your point, dance with the fear or, you know, lemon, lemon juice out of lemon, lemonade out of lemons and, and et cetera. But like all the cliches are true. It's just how do you react to these things? Yes. And how are, how prepared are you when those things happen emotionally? <clears throat> Correct. I mean, one of the, one of the great, I mean, probably the best uh, tool I have uh, when it comes to this is my wife. Like, so we are entrepreneurs together. We go through some, cra- we do some crazy stuff together as it relates to businesses and financial decisions. And every time we have a little blip or every time we feel like there's a, you know, uh, trouble ahead, we just kind of look back to each other and we are in the same boat together and we support each other. And that is, uh, that is the greatest support and that, that helps with everything. And then when there's an opportunity, it's, you know, I'm her biggest supporter. She's my biggest supporter in going for it. And it's really, those are, those are incredibly powerful. That's incredibly powerful tool. Absolutely. So invaluable to have a partner in life who gets you, you know, who understands all of the emotional roller coaster that is being an entrepreneur. Yeah. We, we sort of look at life and our relationship as an accordion uh, and we have trust and faith that it is a instrument and that's not going to break apart. But sometimes, you know, things are further apart from each other than you'd like them to be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're really close. But in all cases, you're making music. That's right? so beautiful. So, yeah. Well, we're almost wrapped here, Jeffrey. You've been such yeah. a fun, insightful and um, motivating guest. I, I, I like to wrap the show with some fill in the blanks because huh. it's. It's a combination of heavy and light on the show. So this sure. is where we, we, we end on a lighter note. Fun, fun note. I start a sentence. You finish it. First thing that comes to your mind, don't overthink it. Okay. If first, I, thought best, first thought, best thought. First thought, best thought. Exactly. I love that. I'm going to steal that. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say $100 million or more, if that's still like, yeah, you know, I made that last year. <laughs> if I won the lottery tomorrow, and if you don't even play the lottery, excuse, pardon the, the, the example, but let's just say money falls on your lap. Sure. I would. Uh. There's so many ways this could go. I would lobby. I would set up a lobbying group to lobby Congress to change or remove all the subsidies in the farm bill. Nice. Fight fire with fire. Yeah, that's the problem right now. No one is organized around this. I mean, people are. I shouldn't say no one. Um, no one is using the tactics of of big ag to fight for small ag. Well, big ag's got big stuff. money, so that's part that's of correct. The and so does small ag. It's just not organized. Yeah. The one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is just one. Well, I'll I give got you two. Small little ones. I got small little. Okay. It, it. I got three. Wash and fold laundry mm-hmm. tops on my list. Like when that was invented, is holy schmoly. 
um, you know, drop off laundry. My dog walker, thank goodness for them because my dogs get great walks uh, in the afternoon and evenings. Um, and then my personal trainer, about a year ago, I started working with this amazing person who uh, it's less about like the physical. It's about the mental and the approach of like doing something that I was so gun shy to do. And um, it has changed and expanded the way I think about everything else. So it's made my life so much easier just like learning how to lift weights, like the proper way. It's just mm-hmm. been amazing. So my biggest guilty pleasure that I spent a lot of money on, remember for a lot of my guests, that's food. Yeah. Um, I spend <clears throat> probably too much money uh, on massage. I love uh, massage. I've it's heard like that one before. Yeah. It's like my favorite thing. Uh, <clears throat> It is. Uh, I love it. I don't know. It's just great. No, yeah. I, I need to start incorporating more massages into my life, I think. I just need I more can, time. <laughs> I can just like zone out and and like someone's just like doing this thing to you. And then like this – like I, I, I run. I, I work out. Like and my muscles sort of like feel like they need it. And then it's just great. Nice. Yeah. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is uh, – I wish I – I wish I – been taught to be a little more detached from it mm. for a long, you know, really until, until, until the last five to seven years or so. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because? Easy, easy. Um, Grow NYC is a, an organization here in New York City that I'm on the board of that runs all the green markets, run, builds uh, school gardens in every school in New York City, runs them. Uh, runs youth markets where kids can actually work at the farmer's market and sell and support their schools. Uh, we do the largest uh, group that does recycling and composting and denim recycling in the city. And we're, we've been around for 45 years and it's the most amazing organization. Uh, it's, it's economic reach and it's social reach is incredible. Fantastic. And I'm Jeffrey Zorowski and I'm so money because... <laughs> oh man, <laughs> this is the gotcha, huh? Yeah. Well, it doesn't have to be. Okay, I'm. So, I'm gonna dance I, with I, this. I'm dancing with it. So I'm so money because now I feel so money because you invited me on the show and I am flattered to have been on it. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. No, the, the pleasure and honor was all mine. You've added such value to my guests' lives today. Thank you very, very much, Jeffrey Zorowski LB. And by the way, I'm a big fan of witchcraft. Oh, um, awesome. it's, you know, I wish the, the sandwich doesn't have that many calories, but well, it, you can always get it on greens or salads too. Yes. Yes. True. 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 <laughs> um, so thank you for all the amazing food and, um, entertainment that you're bringing to New York's diners, but also for, <laughs> you know, just all the wisdom that you are sharing with the world. And, and I do hope that, um, you know, we change the food systems in this country and I hope you win that lottery so that we can do this once and for all. We won't. I don't think we'll need to win a lottery. We can do it on our own. All right. Let's do it. All right. I'll talk to you. Thank you. Okay. Bye. 
that is a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Jeffrey, visit his website, jeffreyzorowski.com. He's also on Twitter at Jeffrey Zorowski. We've got all of this information at somoneypodcast.com, as well as the transcript and comments from this episode and all previous episodes. And I want to continue hearing from you. It's my favorite part of the show. Submit your question about money, work, life, guests at somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh, and there you can leave your biggest, baddest question. There's a very good chance that I will answer it on the weekends as I spend Saturday and Sunday responding to your inquiries and comments. And as a reminder, if you'd like the chance to win a free 15-minute money session with me, just hop on over to iTunes, leave a review for this show. As I've been doing every Saturday, I select one new reviewer from iTunes to receive a free 15-minute money blitz with me. And so if this is something that is interesting to you and you want to connect on a more personal level, I would absolutely love to do that. I would love to see a review on iTunes and hopefully we will connect. Thank you so much once again to my fantastic guest, Jeffrey Zorov. And to you for tuning in on this Friday. Hope to see you over the weekend as we answer questions. And I hope the rest of your Friday is so money. Money.